Welcome to Aston Martin Heritage's division manufacturing centre. It's brilliant to be here. Everyone in the office is so jealous that I got to be the one doing the interview. It's amazing. I can see you've got quite a few cars in production here. Yes, although we will, of course, limit the number of what we call our DB5 continuation series. Each of the cars will be built according to the David Brown era principles, of course. Uh, Plus, we will add the sympathetic application of modern engineering and performance enhancements, which will make the DB5s easier to drive. So are these the ones you're calling the Goldfinger editions? Yes, that's because Aston's heritage engineers will incorporate all the gadgets featured in the film Goldfinger, a rear smoke screen delivery system, rear oil slick delivery system, revolving number plates front and rear, bullet resistance, rear shield, battering rams front and rear, tyre slashes, a removable passenger seat roof panel, a radar screen tracker map, a telephone in the driver's door, a gear knob actuator button, armrest and centre console mounted switch gear, under seat hidden weapons, storage tray, a remote control for gadget access and of course twin front machine guns wow a car like that i bet it costs a fortune how much are you selling it for well each car is just over three million euros plus local taxes of course but that's not the reason why they're so expensive watch out yeah we keep accidentally killing people who are building them it's costing us a fortune in compensation Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm at home in North London using the gift of Zoom this week to talk to Sarah in West London. Hi, Sarah. Hello. And Zog, who, despite the fact that I know you're actually in Southwest London, Zog, according to your Zoom backdrop, you are currently in orbit somewhere near the International Space Station. Looking good, bro. How are you? Hey, not bad, thanks. Yeah, and you're right. I've rather craftily given myself a Zoom background for this video chat of some rather nice footage from the International Space Station. Gorgeous stuff. I know we will get round to talking about cars in a moment, but we've got to talk about space for at least 10 seconds first. It's been a fantastic week if you're a space nut. And I know that of the three people on screen at the moment, 66.6% of them are utter space nuts. Zog, did you enjoy it? I did. Sarah? Hey, look, I don't mind um, astrology. (laughs) <laughs> oh, out, out. We're not having any of that nonsense on here. <laughs> sorry, sorry. This is a place yeah, for yeah. rational people only, Sarah Leach, you and your astrology. <laughs> so did you enjoy the SpaceX Crew Dragon launch then of Endeavour? Oh, yeah. No, it was fabulous, exciting and really quite moving stuff. The actual moment of liftoff, I actually found quite emotional very exciting stuff and it was yeah, tremendous to see them pull it off successfully and the docking was wonderful although I would also say that there was this interesting aspect to watching a lot of live space events like that in that much as I absolutely love it and I was riveted you do spend an awful lot of time watching almost nothing happen until for a few seconds something happens. Yeah it's like a strip tease isn't it it's all in the potential of what's going to happen and uh, that simply adds to the excitement you know you're waiting oh let something happen oh something slightly happened then that was great you know. I think I spent about two hours watching Chris Cassidy set up cameras and fiddle with cables and video links around the hatch of the docking adapter which actually made me think that I don't think I've ever seen a sci-fi film in which one vessel docks with another vessel and they then spend several hours faffing around setting up cameras and doing you know (laughs) little odds and sods before they actually open the hatch and go from one vessel to the other. Sarah I know you're an astrologist rather than an astronomer but did you get caught up in the excitement of the SpaceX launch at all? Oh Gareth I um 
Unfortunately, I didn't really know much about it. That's a horrible thing to say, isn't it? Not necessarily. We all occupy different parts of the universe. And if your Venn diagram doesn't cross over into SpaceX, that's all right. Because I think Zog and I took care of the massive interest department in it on your behalf. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll take over your interest in astrology. Just just (laughs) me. Oh, yeah, you can have that, baby. Yeah. We're going to have to talk about this another time. Yes, we will. What Zog said about it being emotional was very interesting, though, because I sat on my sofa like Zog watching the full two and a half hour build up. It's just like the start to a Grand Prix. And at the moment of ignition, which is one of the key points where things can go terribly wrong in rocketry, I leapt up off the sofa and was jumping around the room like I'd scored a goal for Wales in the World Cup final or something. It was unbelievably exciting and uh, I'm so pleased the whole thing went well. But anyway, let's talk about the other stuff that we all agree on that the three of us here get excited by and that's Formula One and the fact that today, despite... A conversation that we had on the show a couple of weeks ago where it looked unlikely that the British Grand Prix was going to go ahead due to these two-week quarantine limitations for people travelling into the UK. The Austrian Grand Prix's got the go-ahead and the British Grand Prix's got the go-ahead and they're going to be double headers. Sarah, have you got the whole schedule for the races in front of you? The calendar of the next eight races. Yes, I do. I do. Go on, read it through. Uh, it is very exciting. Okay, so we have the Red Bull Ring in Austria. So we've got the 3rd to the 5th of July. So that will be the three days of racing. And then it will be the consecutive weekend after that, just 10th to the 12th of July. And then that will be followed by the Hungarian Grand Prix, which is my understanding is about a four-hour drive. They don't have a break. They come straight over to the British Grand Prix on the 31st of July, and that will be at Silverstone. And then the following weekend, they have the 70th anniversary Grand Prix at Silverstone. Then that will be followed by the Spanish Grand Prix, Belgian Grand Prix, and the Italian Grand Prix. So that will run between August and September. So they've set for the first eight races and my understanding is that they're very determined to get the final race happening in Abu Dhabi so they're looking at maybe at least the 15 to 18 race season. That's pretty healthy all things considered you know you want a championship of a good number of races and there are a good number of races there. On a personal note the fact that the first race weekend coincides with my birthday weekend I won't be able to go out and celebrate but I will be celebrating because this F1 on TV. So this is good news, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's good to see that they've pulled together something of a plan to get a season going. Let's hope this happens. My initial take on this was that it looks like with eight races, that is, I believe, the minimum number of races that you need to make a season. Yeah. In order for it to to kind of actually count as a season of racing in Formula One, you need at least eight races. But these races are only taking place in Europe which means that if we don't get any other races, this will not be a world championship. doesn't matter if Lewis Hamilton wins every race, he won't be a world champion this year because these races all take place in Europe and you have to have races on, I think, three different continents for it to count as a world championship. Interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. And the other thing is, on my quick reading of what the FIA had said about this provisional calendar, it's unclear as yet what the situation is with any kind of proposed crowd attendance at these races. I think they said that certainly the first races would be behind closed doors. We run without crowds. They're hoping that there'll be some attendance at the later races, but I don't think they were specific about which of the races counted as the later races. So we don't know quite how this is going to shape up yet, but at least we've got a provisional calendar and some definite plans for some racing. So that's something to look forward to. Sarah, are you looking forward to it or is it just going to be too weird watching racing with no one in the grandstands? No, I'm really looking forward to it. Very excited. I think it will be all very interesting how it all plays out. They have extreme safety measures, so regular testing, sort of minimal personnel in each team, all the isolated travel, which the government has allowed for um, no quarantine time for all of the elite sport, not just Formula One. So that'll be interesting. And I think that's a good thing because maybe that's just a good sign of things to come for the general public. Um, yeah. So they're going to try and practice social distancing. 
I think it's really good. Very exciting. Everybody, I think, is very much looking to have something other than COVID-19 to talk about. And if F1 can fill that role, then fantastic. Um, the only problem, though, that I think some of the teams are talking about is that two races at the one track in Austria, then you've got two races at the one track in Silverstone, is that they may have the same winners at each race due to you know the way the cars work around the track obviously. Yep. And there's been suggestions of changing the rules like reverse grid proposal, etc. but which got shut down by Mercedes. Yeah, they don't want anyone else other than Lewis winning the championship is what Christian Horner from Red Bull said quite publicly and he's probably right talking. And why should they? You know, why should they? But I'd rather see two consecutive races at the same track than see two more virtual Grand Prix, for example. And one thing that having a bit of virtual racing instead of the real racing going on has sort of made me realise is actually just how much I wanted to see the young drivers going at it this year because we really do at the moment have a tremendous cohort of young racers who've got a bit of experience under their belt now. And if we were racing normally, we would see some fantastic racing between them. We know that Verstappen is a superstar, but Alex Albon, George Russell, Lando Norris, and Pierre Gasly, you know, Gasly Mark II, and Leclerc. The return of Esteban Ocon as well, who's no slouch. Yes, absolutely, yes. We haven't had a chance to see those guys going at each other in real races yet, and I can't wait to see that happen, with or without a crowd. It was interesting when Ross Braun was talking about having a qualifying race to determine grid positions for the second race at each of these first two venues in Austria and in the UK. And it seemed to me that that would be tremendously exciting, but never bloody going to happen because the teams have accepted so many other changes just to get going on this sport that they're not going to allow that one over the line. They were being a bit ambitious trying to get that through. Now is not the time for that. Maybe again in a couple of years when the new rules come through, but it just it was never going to happen. Uh, I was suppose it? you could make the case that if you're throwing a lot of other things up in the air and you're also having a slightly weird season which might or might not end up counting as a world championship and we don't know how the rest of the year is going to pan out. This is the time when you can experiment with the format a bit more. You could certainly make that case. Why not mix it up a bit more? Mm. So all bets are off. We might as well change everything sort of attitude. The titles of these races are curious. We're going to get the Austrian Grand Prix followed the following week by what we in English would call the Styrian Grand Prix because the Red Bull ring is in the Styrian region of Austria, but I think the German name for it is slightly different. Is it Steiermark? Steiermark, yes, uh, I think Steiermark. you're right. So, Steiermark, yeah. Steiermark, looking at the... Uh, You've got it there in front of you, well done. And then yep. when we get to the UK, the first race is the British Grand Prix. Then the second race is the Emirates... 70th anniversary Grand Prix and they mean the 70th anniversary of Formula One not the 70th anniversary of the Emirates airline that'll be an interesting weekend if there's no crowds there so they'll be celebrating this big 70th anniversary because I don't think they'll be doing the driver's parade so I don't think that will happen because there'll be no crowd to wave to yeah it'll probably be a great shame actually if they try and celebrate this 70th anniversary Grand Prix and there's no real crowd to really celebrate with them they'll have to do a virtual (laughs) (laughs) some sort of zoom call with all their uh, fans well I remember a few years ago been at the British Grand Prix where they were celebrating was it 50 years of Silverstone quite possibly and they had a parade of F1 cars through the ages before the race which, quite frankly, I enjoyed much more than watching a bunch of distant blokes sitting on the back of a truck. I'd much rather see cars. You know, you got that whole gamut of cars from the 1950s right until almost the present day. It was lovely to be able to see the development of Formula One lay out in front yeah. of you. I hope they do that sort of thing, but that probably means yeah, bringing true. extra people into the circuit. Are they allowed to do that? And, and to hear the development, because, you know, the sounds of the different engines over the years very satisfying to hear the roar the rasp the scream and now the hushed buzz of formula one 
But if you've got any anniversary to celebrate at a certain race, you've only got one shot at it. You could only do it when it is your 70th anniversary. So yeah. they've got to do it now. And at least they'll get their branding on the TV coverage. I think they'll be happy enough with the event. At least they'll get some event happening, which gets some coverage rather than nothing. I read two suggestions for better names for these two Grand Prix this week. Someone very smartly said, no, no, we shouldn't call it the Styrian Grand Prix. We should call it the Nicky Louder Grand Prix. Now, that's a nice idea. It's not a bad idea. That's a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. And then they sort of extrapolated that idea and suggested that the second race at Silverstone should be called the Sterling Moss Grand Prix. Isn't that a great idea? That's a good idea, too. Yeah, I could get behind that. No question. But you can see why they're calling it the Styrian and the Emirates races. I would imagine the Styrian government are pumping an awful lot of money into this event to make it happen in Austria. And that Emirates, as the sponsors of the British Grand Prix, want their return. It's all about brand visibility, isn't it? Mm. And money. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, they've apparently hemorrhaged quite a lot of money this season already. And that's now why they're doing all these budget cuts, aren't they? Yep. Well, not just for making the sport sustainable, but to keep the teams there as well. And we inched a little bit closer to possibly losing one of F1's grandee names this week when Williams said that they were willing to sell either a minority share or even a majority share, if not the entire team, just so they could stay in Formula One. Wow, I never thought I'd see the day. They have other plans to keep going though, don't they? Oh yeah, I mean, they're very determined to carry on. I think the trouble that they have that is, you're absolutely right, if they do sell the whole team or they get someone take over ownership, they're at risk of the name being changed from Williams to something else. So that tradition, unfortunately, will go. And then Claire Williams also may not be able to keep her job. Fingers crossed for them, they can actually get the investment money that they are desiring. And I certainly hope it would be because it's a it's a traditional team and so many Formula One drivers have won world championships with them. You've got the likes of Alan Jones, Keki Rosberg, Nelson Piquet, Nigel Mansell, Alan Prost and Damon Hill. They all won world championships with Williams and Williams have been probably one of the major dominant forces in Formula One so far and especially being quite prominent over the 80s and 90s. Um, It's just, unfortunately for them, the last two seasons, they've come last. I think in the last 20 years, the only teams to have won world championships are Ferrari, McLaren, Mercedes, Williams and Renault. I think they're the only five teams. And what about Red Bull? Oh, and Red Bull, six teams. Oops, sorry. Yes, good catch. Good catch. Can't forget about Sebastian Vettel in his heyday. Yeah, yeah, true enough. And you mentioned Alan Jones there. Got a win. Of course, you know that as an Australian. Of course. Exactly. Although he was technically Welsh. Yeah, of of course he was. No, he was. I've had this conversation Um, with him. His dad was a Welshman. But he was an Aussie. Yes, he was. I think Patrick Head and one or two others have said in the past, he was a really sort of defining figure for Williams. He gave them a lot of their early glory and he was a tremendous Williams champion and really embodied a lot of the Williams values. But it's a long time, unfortunately, since Williams really reached those heights. And I can remember quite a few years ago, Gareth, we had conversations about how despite Williams not doing all that well, they were still one of those teams that had the kind of the institutional memory of how to win Grand Prix and how to win championships. Yeah. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. They have the ambition, um, they have the intention, they may have the determination, but whether they've got the resources and the ability to pull it off, that's another question. They're looking very shaky. It's clear that they need to seriously rethink their approach to go from the position that they were at the top of the grid to the position they are now at the back of the grid means that they've been doing it wrong for a while. All the other teams have learned how to do it better. So, yeah, I'm wondering who could buy Williams. In the meantime, who's going to replace Rocket as their sponsor? Title sponsor. Because that relationship seems to have gone very sour very, very quickly. And I'm wondering why they've both apparently, in inverted commas, agreed to end that relationship. That doesn't sound very healthy, does it? Well, let's hope they can find somebody to step in 
one way or another with the money that they need to get back on a solid footing and get racing competitively again because in George Russell they've got a really promising young driver and it's a shame that they haven't been able to really give him quite the machinery that he could demonstrate his talent in I think so yeah fingers crossed for them they hold a special place in our hearts I hope they pull through but it's going to be tricky it's intriguing that with the new rules coming in in the next couple of years, that Williams actually potentially stand a chance of having a bit of a reset with these new rules that will even up the playing field a little bit. It's theoretically teams who've got strength in depth, a bit of experience, are best placed to make the best of new rules. I'm worried that the Williams that we know might not survive long enough. I can't see them taking a minority share, I think someone else will buy them out wholly because they simply can't survive that long. That's not a bad point, actually, because the Haas team is owned by a billionaire and also now Lance Stroll, his father, owns Racing Point and he's a billionaire. So you might see a billionaire come out from nowhere and you're right, just take over the whole team because if they can, why not? Yeah, I just wonder how many more billionaires there are out there who are interested in having their own F1 team. There are always more billionaires than were than there were before, but... I think there'd be more than a few billionaires that might be keen. There's plenty of young racing drivers out there with fathers with deep pockets and you've also got those gentleman drivers that get themselves involved in the Pro-Am series and the endurance races. So it could be quite a few interested players out there in the market. You never know. It's a little sad, though, that it's come to that because really Formula One always was a, I'm going to say a rich man, a rich person. It was a rich man's playground, wasn't it, Formula One? And it's still is. But really, you would hope that it would be talent that would keep teams going, like, you know, the skills of Patrick Head and Frank Williams or Chapman in the past or Ron Dennis. These were just racers through and through, technology masters, people who could see how they could take technology and make it benefit their team and make their team win. Maybe it's the rules that have changed that are preventing that from happening these days. Maybe we ought to go back to the the formula we had in the 1960s to make that possible again. You can't do that though, can you? You simply cannot wind the clock back. So many things have changed. You gain more knowledge. So many things around the sport change. The technology you're working with changes. Business changes. Yeah, you can never look back. You've got to look forward. You've got to, always got to find a new way to take it forward. That could be hard. Well, I'm pleased we've got plenty to look forward to in Formula One coming very, very soon as we return to racing. Hooray for that. Sarah, I know we're going to lose you because in the second half of the programme, we're having another guest join us to talk about the motor industry. But just before you vanish, Mm -hmm. will you tell me what on earth has gone wrong for Daniel Abt at the moment? Yes, the poor driver. He's made a terrible mistake, actually, and he's lost his Audi drive completely over an East Sport race. He's guilty of using a ringer to drive for him in the Formula E eSport Championship. So he's been disqualified from the race. He's been fined 10,000 euros and he's been stripped of all his points after it was discovered that he used a professional eSport racer to compete in his place. I mean, obviously that looks quite bad and outright cheating, but he claims that it wasn't cheating. He wasn't treating the whole thing seriously, yada, yada. But unfortunately for him, that's his Formula E drive over. He put up a 15-minute video explaining his actions, but unfortunately that's what saved him. So a bit of a silly thing to do, and unfortunately for him, he's not driving for Audi anymore. Naughty boy, naughty boy. See, there you go. Mm. When your dad owns the team, you're not even safe in the team. That's a real worry. Well, (laughs) that was not only cheating, that was the first ever example, I think, of virtual cheating in motorsport. There are always going to be people who try and twist round the rules in motorsport. That's the first time I've ever come across someone doing it virtually. Soft lad. I know. I mean, does that mean he can't really put anybody else in his place in real life, but sounds like he wouldn't mind doing that if it was <laughs> behind closed doors, <laughs> unfortunately for him. But he has apologised to his family and pretty much everyone, obviously. But the fine that he did have to pay has gone to UNICEF, and rightly so. Good. Right. Sarah, thank you very much indeed for joining us for the first half. No, thank you. Take it easy, and we'll be back for more on speed after this. You know what people are always saying to me? They say to me, Gareth, why don't you write a song 
that charts the history of aerodynamics in Formula One between the 1950s and the early 1980s. All right, I often answer. And then they go on to say, yeah, yeah, but why don't you do it in the style of Iggy Pop and the Cramps? Obviously, I have to reply, well, I can't do that for copyright reasons, but I could do it in the style of someone called Jiggy Pop and the Crumps. Gareth Jones on speed. We've already spent half an hour talking about what isn't necessarily happening in motorsport at the moment, but it is about to start happening, which means that for the next half hour in the programme, we get to talk about largely stuff that hasn't been happening in the motor industry. And I can't imagine anyone better to comment on that than the actual editor-in-chief of my actual favourite car magazine in the universe, the editor-in-chief of Car Magazine, Phil McNamara. Welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. Well, that's quite the intro. Thank you, Gareth. <laughs> and I'm glad to be here. Nowhere near as glad as I am to have you on this. I think I've told you this before, that I've read Car Magazine for something like 40 years, possibly even 45 years. So to have the editor-in-chief of that esteemed publication on the show means a great deal to me because pretty much everything I know about the car industry, I get from the publication that you're in charge of. Do you get that sense of weight of importance? 
important to the job that you're doing? Does Car Magazine mean as much to you personally as it does to the rest of us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Car has a wonderful history. I mean, we've been around since 1962 and it's been a very pioneering mag in terms of design and, you know, really tried to be great storytellers when perhaps car magazines were a little bit dull and fusty and, you know, we invented comparison tests, which the industry hated and scooping cars in the UK, that kind of thing. And we've had this sort of maverick attitude and it's read around the world and we've got to keep loyal fans like you who keep me in a job satisfied and keep them reading. So all power to you for paying a little bit of my wages for the last few years. Well, I've even actually put my life on the line to keep you in wages because I don't go to my local news agent to pick up the weekly car magazines or the magazines I read since lockdown but I will go once a month to pick up car magazine that's how committed I am to that mighty tome by the way let me introduce you to Zog Phil McNamara Phil McNamara Zog good to see you Phil and also a long-time fan of the magazine. And I'm glad you mentioned the design of the magazine because that's always been something that I've admired. It's always been a tremendously good-looking magazine as well as one that's had some wonderful columnists over the years. As you say, a magazine with great history and continues to be a bible of the industry. And Zog, you were actually the editor of an industry bible yourself, Sound on Sound magazine. What was this, about 20 years ago now? Roughly, yeah, that's right. A little less than that. But yeah, I had a fair bit of involvement with the magazine industry myself. And it's a tricky industry at the moment, but car, it's looking pretty healthy in difficult times. Phil, let me ask you that. How has the coronavirus lockdown affected things at car? As you can imagine, a magazine called Car if you can't get out and drive cars, you're kind of not doing exactly what it says on the tin. So it hasn't been easy, but we've managed to keep going through some good planning. I mean, I'm not the editor. There's a chap called Ben Miller who's doing a brilliant job editing it right now. And he had a lot of our regular feature ingredients banked up through good planning. And do you know what? The real secret weapon we've had is a guy called George Carker, who is our European editor. And he lives in Germany. He's an Austrian guy who lives in Germany. And he's been working for the mag, Gareth, as long as you've been reading it. He, I think he started in 1975. He's the master of all German car scoops. He is. He's as respected over there as Jeremy Clarkson has been over here, I think. Yeah. He's done a brilliant job because Germany hasn't been locked down. While we haven't driven a single car and all the press fleets have closed their doors, George has been keeping us in comparison tests like 911 Turbo versus the BMW M8 and, you know, he's driven the new Audi A3. So he has been a fantastic source of material for us. Single-handedly keeping our favourite magazine going with a little assistance, perhaps. Okay, let's talk about the industry because, as you know, one of the things that Car Magazine does so very well is not simply report on individual automobiles, but on the whole culture behind them, the industry, the movement of the top people in top positions that ultimately lead to the decisions made about which cars we get to drive in five or ten years' time. And I guess the big news in this last couple of weeks is the trials and tribulations and the change of ownership and the change of management at Aston Martin. Talk us through that, Phil, because Dr. Andy Palmer, who I thought was doing a great job, has gone. Yeah, he sure has. And I think my peers and I, we'll be pretty sad to see him go because he's done a terrific job. When he took over Aston in 2014, it was loss making. It was probably making about 4,000 cars. And he just galvanised the company and he's introduced some great sports cars, you know, The first few years was about getting a new DB11, the big V12 coupe, the sort of the flagship Grand Tour into production. I think that came out in 2016. He then brought out Avantage, which is a smaller sports car, two-seater, sort of a Porsche 911 rival. And he's done a really good job in doing that, in bringing the sports car back. And I'd have said probably about 2017, the company had record revenue, probably was close to 900 million. But in 2018, he and the owners of the company made a decision to float it on the stock exchange. And this was, it turns out, and it's easy to say in hindsight, but it's been a terrible strategic error because it hasn't then hit its targets for in terms of production. Then losses have come in. So it's not hitting its financials. And the bottom line is the share price, it floated at £19 a share. And now, a few weeks ago, when Andy Palmer sadly had to leave his role, the share price had plummeted to 30p, from £19 to 30p. 
You could see why they had to float it, simply because you ask most people, and the two most recognisable car brands on the planet, it's, well, three perhaps, Ferrari, Rolls-Royce and Aston Martin. Aston Martin is regarded in brand value as one of the greatest brands you could have. Also, Aston needed to raise some capital to realise this second century plan is what I think Dr. Palmer called it, where they moved into St. Athen in South Wales, set up a whole new facility, which I've been down to see is vast, to build an Aston Martin in Wales. Let me tell you how proud that makes me. And to build the right car as well. The DBX was a smart choice. They couldn't get it over the hump, though. It seems all gone to pot it shouldn't have done though should it he made good decisions didn't he yeah absolutely and one of the first things he did was he introduced this car as you say that we built in wales the dbx it's a crossover suv and we all know what's happening to sports cars sports cars are selling fewer and fewer to the hardcore car fans like ourselves and you need an suv every car company is doing an suv bentley's introduced one rolls royce has introduced one ferrari is introducing one and The problem is that car probably didn't come soon enough. That's such a profit generator that opens up a female market that Andy was particularly targeting a female audience for that car. Families, you know, two plus two seat sports cars couldn't do that. But the problem is that car has been delayed a little bit by coronavirus. You know, like all car factories around the world, it's had to close down. But there's a lot of know-how in sports cars within Aston Martin There's less know-how in DBX. They had to learn on the job how to create this big SUV with very different suspension, different kind of powertrain, different platform. And so, of course, introducing that took time. And sadly, it hasn't really come soon enough. But it's not the lack of a DBX that has probably caused, sadly, Andy's exit. It is really the stock price. It's really what's happened with that flotation. Why didn't people buy into this gorgeous brand what are the doubts is it about not necessarily aston martin themselves but the viability of a premium car brand in this tightened age you know Andy Palmer always said when he was boss that there's only one car brand that could target Ferrari and that's Aston Martin and I think fundamentally he's right he can do that you know you think of the James Bond cachet it might be a little bit overwrought but people know about Aston and people love Aston if you try and pull out in a Ferrari you get a few unpleasant hand gestures if you're in an Aston people let you out okay I'm lapsing into cliche here but there's a bottom line there's a lot of goodwill around Aston it's a great brand and it could be a luxury player sorry Zog you want to chip in I was going to say Zog you're going to agree with that you're a bond fan you're going to be a massive aston martin fan aren't yeah, you? but even beyond the bond fan i think you know phil's absolutely right it's a remarkable brand that has a recognition and an affection that is extremely rare and very valuable in the car industry you know it's very easy to be undercut on price it's very easy for your performance in all sorts of areas to be exceeded you know for something to do this this better or that better on some objective level but to create the kind of cachet that brands like Ferrari and Aston have is very, very hard. It takes time. And the depths to which that share price has sunk. I mean, I didn't know it had gone as low as 30p. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? That is extraordinary that it's valued so low. My naive reaction would be buy Sebastian Martin shares because they can't possibly be worth that little. Well, if you'd have bought them just before Andy Palmer went, they were 30p. They bounced back up to 50p with the news of who the replacement will be. The other point is, the problem with Aston is they just haven't got enough money. If you think about it, 876 million, 880 million, it was record revenue. That's not that much money when you think probably a new engine program in the car industry costs a billion dollars. And so they could only really fund one car at a time. And that's another reason DBX took a little while to come. And so the bottom line is they just haven't got the pots of money that other car companies have got. They don't have the big owner like Tata Motors of India that JLR has got, Jaguar Land Rover. That's interesting. Fancy being so wealthy as a brand, so wealthy with potential but still not being able to survive on a day-to-day basis. It's a bit like the analogy of the British aristocracy. We've said this on the programme previously. Most lords have got overheads which are absolutely killing them. You know, they haven't got a penny in their pocket. They're probably driving Aston Martins they've had for 30 or 40 years, aren't they? All right, let's talk about other car manufacturers because you've got the likes of Nissan, 
who are effectively withdrawing from Europe. I mean, that's shocking, Phil, isn't it? Well, I think if you put that to Nissan, I mean, and they are a very calm company. They're public relations. They don't like to say too much. They never comment on future products. But I suspect you might get a little call from a PR man saying we aren't withdrawing from Europe. And I can sympathise with that position to an extent. Yes, they are retrenching in Europe, but they're not pulling out altogether. The great news is that the Sunderland plant, Britain's biggest car factory, which builds the Qashqai, the electric Leaf, builds the Duke as well, the small SUV, that has got a future. They've committed to building their big plant in Western Europe will be in the UK. So that's great news unless Brexit causes another horrible, horrible financial implication that the coronavirus is. There have been protests in Spain at the closure of some of the Iberian plants, haven't there? There have been war on the streets, practically. Yeah. We are lucky in the UK that we have cars in those boom segments. Something like 40% of European car sales were crossovers and SUVs last year. And we've got Nissan's two Heartland SUVs in our British plant. In Barcelona, they're building the pickups. They build the Navara. They build the Alaskan pickup for Renault. They used to build the Merc X-Class until that went out of production. And they build the NV200 van, I think. And that could probably be put somewhere else within the alliance. Renault and Nissan, who are in an alliance, they're going to work more closely together and they'll probably pull more of their production So when you've lost, I don't know, they probably lost something like 40 billion yen last year. That's probably about 300 million pounds. Then you've got to make cuts. And that's what's going to be rationalised. One of the plants goes, all that fixed cost goes. Sadly, people's jobs go. But that's what both Renan and Nissan have to do right now because they are not financially performing. Zog, do you have any emotional attachment to Nissan in the way you do with Aston Martin? Uh, I can't say I do, but it's tremendously encouraging for the British car industry that Nissan are choosing to stay in the UK. And in all honesty, if you had told me Nissan are going to scale back their European operations, what would you expect them to cut? You know, my first thought would be, well, given Brexit, they're going to pull out of the UK, not pull out of stuff in mainland Europe. And so I'm naively surprised that they've gone that way. And it's interesting. I mean, you're suggesting, Phil, that it's basically the particular mix of vehicles that they're producing in different locations that accounts for that. Basically, the fact that they're building the Qashqai at Sunderland that has meant they hang on to production. Yeah, that's part of it. It's a highly efficient plant, highly skilled, highly trained, highly motivated workforce and hundreds of millions of pounds worth of investment. Billions, if you look at it over the life cycle of that factory, which started in the 80s under the Inward Investment Programme that probably started under Margaret Thatcher. And so you don't want to burn all that. So, of course, you know, having invested so much, it makes sense to keep it. And the great news is that the next generation Qashqai, a car that Nissan can't get soon enough is going to be in there in a couple of years time that's terrific news but i did look at some statistics and nissan was down 20 percent in western europe its registrations its car sales were down 20 percent in 2019 that is the worst performing of any western car maker or any car maker in that market i'll tell you why it is it's because they've let their cars get too old the cash yeah, yeah. the duke in particular i remember going to see that car <laughs> my eyes almost popped out of my head when i saw it for the first time that must have been a decade ago and they only replaced it last year and that is a cardinal sin when they showed their sort of transformation plan as nissan's calling it they showed the average age of their model lineup and it had gone over four years and you know and that is the that is the sweet spot you've got to keep those cars fresh because there's so much competition out there and if they don't feel fresh look fresh are fresh then you're a dead duck in the marketplace. Phil, you said that Nissan and Renault are going to work ever closer together. Do you think we're going to get a situation where Renault will be the European brand for the Renault-Nissan alliance? Nissan will concentrate on North America, Japan, and possibly Britain. And I don't know, in Pacific markets, you're not going to get Renault, are you? You're just going to get Nissan in Pacific markets and Renault in South American markets or a Nissan big there? How does it work? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Gary. This is the big statement from the Alliance is that they are going to work much more cooperatively than they have. And I don't know if your listeners remember, but there's been this fantastic ongoing story about Carlos Ghosn. Oh, yeah. We love big Carlos. Yeah. He's last seen leaving for Lebanon in a cello case or a double bass case, wasn't it? Absolutely. Do I need to give the backstory here or do you want to do it? Do it. Do it. it, Yeah. So anyway, this is a guy who... 
in the late 90s, he was a Renault executive and he was parachuted in to run Nissan. And he became a hero because he turned around a company that was on the verge of bankruptcy. And Nissan went from strength to strength and he eventually became the head of Renault and Nissan. And the problem was he was considering a merger. And there's always been some ill will, I guess, is perhaps the phrase that Renault owned a 40 percent controlling interest effectively in Nissan. And Nissan only had 15 percent and non-voting rights in Renault. And so it was a bit unfair. And they called it an alliance because we know these mergers haven't worked historically. You think about BMW and Rover. Daimler Chrysler is a great one when Schremp and the Chrysler guys said, oh, this is a merger of equals. And behind their backs, Daimler was saying, oh, no, we're in charge. And of course, it all went kaboom. And so this is the thing. There was this threat of a merger between Renault and Nissan. Certainly, Nissan did not take too kindly to this. And anyway, I won't go into the motivations why, but in 2018, Carlos Ghosn was arrested when he touched down in Tokyo for alleged financial irregularities. And he was subsequently questioned at great length, was held captive for many months by Japanese law enforcement officials. And anyway, eventually he was put under house arrest and he was spirited out of the country at Christmas, ended up in Lebanon, which doesn't have an extradition agreement with Japan. But of course, his career, this great titan of industry, this man who Japanese manga comics were created about, were written about, the story of how he turned around Nissan. He ultimately is now a prisoner in tiny Lebanon. So it's one hell of a story. And that explains why there's been such ill will between Renault and Nissan recently, which they're now trying to draw a line under. Phil, I didn't know this. There was a manga comic with Carlos Ghosn as a character in Japan. Yeah, they wrote comics about this great man. And then, of oh. course, he ended up in his position of being held captive by one of the industrial giants of the country that he'd helped save. It was one hell of a turnaround. I think I read not long ago that a couple of people had been arrested or that arrest warrants had been issued for a couple of former Special Forces soldiers who'd supposedly been involved in spiriting him out of the country. Spirited away is the right term. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Hey, you know, surely somebody's going to make a movie about this story because <laughs> uh, there has to be a movie in this. You're absolutely right. And again, so much of this is speculation. I don't want to go down a wormhole here talking about conjecture and gossip and myth, but he's supposed was spirited away in a cello case that his wife had a band, uh, you know, an orchestra, probably a string quartet or something, come and play. And then suddenly he was spirited away in a cello case. He was put on a flight out of Japan. He went via Turkey, I believe it was, and anyway ended up in Lebanon. I don't know how big Colas goat is but i reckon it must have been a double bass <laughs> case you know the stand-up bass bull fiddle as uh, as you'd call it if you were in a skiffle band phil the alliance the rebel alliance between renault and nissan it was an unlikely one in the first place it actually reaped huge benefits didn't it there was technology sharing there was platform sharing we weren't far from badge engineering really but they disguised that well the differences between nissan suvs and renault suvs you know were well disguised but these alliances between mega corporations you mentioned the chrysler daimler one they often end in tears and ford and volkswagen are talking about an ever-increasing closening of relationship. They've got a deal on commercial vehicles at the moment, but they're probably going to be sharing stuff on road cars too. Is that happening? Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is that all car makers face an enormous challenge in that ever-tightening emissions regulations mean there has to be a shift from combustion engine cars to electrified cars there's the yep. same thing happening so but but what do you do where do you invest your money do you put it into electric cars do you put it into plug-in hybrids do you put it into hydrogen-based fuel cells what do you spend your money on and the car companies you know sadly the stock market one of the reasons they're so dismissive of aston martin is the stock market just believes the car industry is a sort of a dinosaur that just destroys capital. And the problem is that the car industry has to invest capital right now to take its cars from combustion to electrified cars. And there's this sort of twin. There's other things. You've got to make the cars connected. There's a school of thought that cars will be autonomous soon. 
we'll see about that. The car industry itself is rowing back a bit, although some tech startups are pretty bullish about it. So Bas, the bottom line is, why are we seeing these mergers? Why are we seeing Renault and Nissan trying to get their act together? Why are we seeing Ford and Volkswagen teaming up with Volkswagen's renowned MEB electric car platform and a joint venture in a very profitable part of Ford's business? It's commercial vehicles. It's massive. It's just owns commercial vehicles really in Europe and makes a staggering amount of money on them. And now it's teaming up to increase its economy of scale with Volkswagen there. So that's the bottom line. They're looking for partnerships to work together to create new technologies and also to give them economies of scale to help them through this tough, tough time that the car industry is going through. And in the meantime, the I'm going to use the term disruptors are disrupting the industry. Tesla have two gigafactories, one in the US, one in China. They've built one or is it still being built in Berlin at the moment? Yeah, it's underway in Berlin. And there was talk of a possible UK gigafactory as well. Has that gone away or is that still being mooted? Do you know? Yeah, I haven't seen Elon Musk for a while. He did mention the last time we sat down with him that he was considering some R&D in the UK. But, you know, Brexit quite possibly makes Britain a bit of a scary place for a big investment at the moment. I mean, he's very... And the rest of us, yes. (laughs) Big fan of the Formula One expertise that we have in this country. You know, we have some brilliant engineers. And so it probably looked good. And he did say, yeah, yeah, I'd certainly, I'm something I'm pursuing. But they've decided ultimately that the place for their big investment, a gigafactory, is in Berlin. They've got this smaller factory in Holland where they assemble cars from parts kits, effectively. Yeah, CKD. They're going all in in Germany. So, yeah, I don't think we'll be seeing any Tesla investment in the UK anytime soon, unfortunately. And presumably the coronavirus-related uncertainty is going to be affecting that investment and the uncertainty of it just as it's affecting the rest of the industry. And it makes so much of the future less certain, less predictable. If you were Daimler right now, wouldn't you just try and buy up one of these disruptors, absorb them, whatever the cost, just to ensure your survival. Is there any sense in Daimler buying up Tesla or uh, I'm trying to think who else there might be or in that position? They'd be quite expensive to buy up. That's the trouble. Mm. If you're looking for a disruptor, which disruptor do you pick? You've got to pick them when they're young and eager and that's when yep. they're trickier to pick, surely. Is it too late now? Tesla are too big, are they, Phil? Zog, you're absolutely right. You've hit the nail on the head there. Initially, the German car industry were a bit dismissive of Tesla and they were promoting their diesel cars and they didn't really want to change that much. And then Tesla basically shook them up. I mean, Elon Musk himself said, I am here to disrupt the car industry. My business may not be sustainable, but if I intensify the shifts from combustion engine to electrified cars because I believe that the world needs to be more sustainable, then I believe this is something that I would like to do to sort of serve society. It makes him sound like a bloody hero, you know, it makes him sound like some kind of Marvel superhero. And of course, um, yeah. Tony Stark is based on yeah. Elon Musk. Robert Downey Jr.'s portrayal of him is based on Elon Musk. But anyway, the bottom line is that Musk wanted to change the car industry and he did. That and Dieselgate, when Volkswagen, the Volkswagen diesel scandal, certainly then made that company want to change its ways and the opinion of Elon Musk has gone from you know that sort of pesky bloke who doesn't build cars of very good quality to my god you know he's shown us how to do it with electric cars he's pushed us into it and the bottom line is now that company that has divided the analysts and the investors you know something and it will fly high something and it will crash down to earth well at the moment it is absolutely soaring and it makes the old legacy car companies pretty sick that its market capitalization is bigger than ford or general motors you know for a company that builds a fraction of the millions of cars they build but you know hey ho He's still ahead in terms of bringing out those cars, the Model 3. You don't see a compact saloon BMW or Mercedes or Audi yet. You don't see a compact SUV yet. Well, the Model Y should be with us soon. It's just being driven for the first time in America, should be with us in Europe in the next year to 18 months. So he's still ahead at the moment and Tesla's hanging in there. It's curious. We started this programme 
talking about Elon Musk's achievements in outer space, Zog and I, in a programme about cars, could not not mention the SpaceX success of this week. And Phil, you've brought us full circle where we're wrapping up this programme talking about Elon Musk's incredible success here on Terra Firma. I couldn't have asked more of you, Phil. You had no idea what we were talking about in the first half of the show. And as a proper journalist, you've bookended the programme. Phil, thank you for coming on the programme. What a joy having you here nice way it's been great to talk to you both thank you very much thanks phil great having you and zog we'll speak to you again soon bye now that's it you'll be listening to gareth jones on speed i don't know what could happen before the next episode of gareth jones on speed but whether it's good or bad we'll be here to report on it see ya to send us an email see pictures get song lyrics join our facebook fan site follow us on twitter or to find out about sponsorship opportunities go to garethjones.tv Paul is a clever guy He had lots of arrow ideas that he wanted to try Put skirts on his car But brush the deck Lo and behold What the heck I said Woo! Ground effect Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang Gareth Jones on Speed!